I, be, I began to think I wanted to talk about uh, practice as intuition practice. That uh, a question comes up uh, uh, fairly frequently when people sit about um, when we begin to sit quietly and I say, okay, we'll sit for a half hour or sit for an hour or whatever. And sometimes in a retreat, uh, when I have when when there's space to ask questions, people will say, you know. The minute my mind settles down a little bit and I calm down a little bit, um, my mind does not, my attention does not stay quietly with the breath. The moment that uh, I'm settled down, I start to plan the rest of my day. Uh, or I remember who I didn't phone back and what jobs I have to do later. Or... Uh, it comes to me that yesterday when I talked to my sister-in-law on the phone, I was a little too brief, and I was in a hurry, and I really didn't listen to her carefully. And so there's a little moral inventory that kicks in, that uh, the attention, once we aren't using it to continue in our lives, when we stop, has a time to do housekeeping. And it, it goes through its files. Okay, what mail didn't I answer? It's like your email, you know? It keeps telling you, if you don't answer your mail, when you turn it on again, it says, you got mail. It saves it. It might not even be new mail, but it saves it. The, the stuff you didn't do yet, what is still on my desk, comes up. Um, also, what you did wrong comes up. It's kind of, if, you, if we were to make an office uh, analogy of the whole thing, your email that's left over comes up. If you didn't tidy your office, uh, you discover about it. Uh, there's a kind of a janitorial service that comes in and looks around for stuff that you didn't even leave in your email, like phone back your sister-in-law or write her an email because you really didn't talk long enough. And so I think there's a moral inventory function that kicks in maybe in the night and comes in the morning. And so, but it's the same when you sit. That moral inventory reports to you, you didn't do this right or you didn't do that right. Do it now. Fix it up. Also, sometimes people say, you know, I was sitting there so quietly and the turkeys were making their noise outside and all of a sudden a haiku formed in my mind. And I realized it was a great haiku. It was really wonderful about the turkeys. And I, then I started to embellish it a little bit. It was such a good haiku. I thought, well, I could send this into the inquiring mind. Or I could send it into... Matter of fact, I could send it to Tricycle. It's such a good haiku. And then I started to fix it up a little bit and really polish it. Somebody else said, you know, I have to make this presentation to my um, work group next week, and I hadn't known how to do it. As soon as I sat down, the whole presentation presented itself in my mind. Should I have just gone back to the breath? Um, <laughs> I actually have to go make this presentation day after tomorrow. Seems much more useful to think about that. Um, one more kind of thing. Somebody will say, you know, uh, listen, uh, it's partly in the moral inventory and partly into the insight part. Someone will say, you know, I uh, had, uh, I, I spoke a little bit more peremptorily to my child this morning than I meant to uh, because they had forgotten to bring their homework home and reminded themselves this morning and then 
were going to come to school unprepared, and I spoke too quickly to them. But I, I was sitting here now, and I realized, you know, they've got a lot of things on their mind, and they're just 10 years old, and I really could have had a more compassionate response. I could have taken them to school early. They could have gotten the homework and done it before school. In a sense, I give you all those examples to give you an, to tell you what it is that I think happens is we become a little bit more completely sane when we sit here. That the mind comes back to itself in all its parts. Its moral inventory function kicks in and does what housekeeping it needs to do. I think we're fundamentally moral, and fundamentally we make the right kind response. And when we don't, it's because we're distracted. And we're fortunate because that morality um, reflex has a, uh, um, is this the right word, a fail-safe device behind it? It catches you if you don't do it. It keeps a, it keeps a list. And we have just the, the, the possibility, oh, we have the possibility of creativity, that haiku business. Uh, I don't think anybody does anything really creative when they're uh, in linear forward motion mode, getting things done. I don't know if anybody writes a poem in the middle of balancing their checkbook <laughs> or doing their income tax. I just, it's not where poetry comes from normally. Um, but in a sense, all of the things that I, that I described, I think if you think about them, which happen frequently for people as they sit here. And the answer to all of them is, should I go back to my breath? No, not necessarily. Perhaps if you were on the first day of a 30-day retreat, I'd say, as much as you can, let's try to hang out with just something simple like the breath and the body. You have to do moral inventory right away. Uh, you can't send the haiku for another 30 days. Just write it down and forget about it. You cannot call your sister-in-law. You're on retreat. So let that all go and just be with the breath because really you want to use this retreat time to cultivate a really uh, focused retreat kind of concentration for whatever insights are available that way. But in the life, this is not to become focused on breath or body is to become awake to the whole of our mind. And the whole of our mind includes the whole piece of our mind that is intuitive, that has hunches. And there's a way in which suddenly an understanding about your child is just 10 and forgets her homework from time to time. Or, I really should have talked to my sister-in-law a little bit longer on the phone yesterday. Or, what were some of the other ones? I wrote a haiku, or uh, I thought of a great way to run that meeting at my work in two days, are all part of the intuitive part of the mind. They're all examples of putting together information that you had before in a new way that lifts it up and makes something new and more useful out of it, and really lifts up your heart at the same time. We find that we're <clears throat> not only uh, equipped to manage our lives, we're equipped to be forgiving, we're equipped to be compassionate, we're equipped to be poets, 
we're equipped to think up uh, ingenious and valuable ways to uh, work in the world with other people. That really lifts you up. Uh, um, I, I, as a matter of fact, I hadn't thought of it until this moment, but uh, for a, a long time. I didn't think about it this week when I was writing this down. In the days following 9-11, when I talked to my friend uh, Tamara Engel, I remember telling you this story then. Tamara Tamara is a uh, mindfulness teacher in New York who had volunteered to go down and work with firemen and policemen off the line and just bring them some kind of talk partner for emotional R&R. Uh, when we spoke on the phone two days later, we talked and talked, and then she said, let's write some haikus together. She said, I've been writing haikus, let's write some together on the phone. That the act of doing a poetic thing together with someone at that moment was an affirmation that the mind could heal and come back to itself. There was an act of faith for her to say, Sylvia, let's write a few haikus together. And that the mind could allow itself to relax enough to be able to do it. It's really a relaxed mind that takes everything that it knows. If anybody had written a haiku about a turkey this morning, they heard about turkeys before. It's not like we imagined a turkey and we see the turkeys here. And sometimes we even wonder about the turkeys because we don't do anything to them and they have no predators here. And so they're increasing and increasing. And we won't do anything to them. And wonder about what will we do someday when we have hundreds of herds of turkeys. <laughs> we have to put them in cars and take them somewhere. But they're our turkeys and they live here. And they're safe here so we can't take them anywhere. But, but we haven't written a haiku about them yet. So when we write a poem or think of something that's new in a new way, there's a sense that I have that the mind is somewhat bigger released from its tightness. I actually feel a different feeling in my body when my mind is released from the grip of immediacy, of, of uh, being caught in something. I think it's why it's such a relief to laugh, you know? When we laugh, we have relaxed our guard. You know, someone catches us off guard with something that's funny. Someone said something incredibly funny. I'd like to remember it in a minute. Yesterday, because it was in the middle of a quite a solemn moment of some invocation somewhere. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, I'm going to laugh. And they just used a particular phrase in that uh, invocation, which was so funny. And you don't burst out in a laugh in the middle of a kind of religious invocation. Um, but I realized, uh, thinking about it, that my spirits lifted up right in that moment. You know, there's, there's something about the mind that's ready to laugh that can. You know, that maybe it'll turn out eventually that it'll be as easy as when we're frightened. We can't think clearly. The mind closes in. And when we're not frightened, we can think in new and creative ways. And maybe it'll turn out to be that meditation practice is one way of addressing the fact that we get frightened so easily. And we just say, okay, wait a minute.
catch my breath, this moment is okay, this moment is okay, this moment is okay, this moment is okay. And then the mind relaxes, and then we see in a new way, and we can make it a little bit more. Maybe the whole of that function of the brain is so that we can relax again and come back and think better. I was thinking about the uh, the uh, uh, the phrase that you hear about uh, uh, the weather when you're flying, and the pilot will come on and say, "We're landing in Boston, where the visibility is 10 miles, or the visibility is uh, 20 miles, or uh, where the sky is completely clear. There's unlimited visibility." I think to myself, "What would we be like in our lives if we had?" unlimited visibility, if we could uh, look in all directions and see. Somebody sent me a card that was one of the first visual aids that I wanted to bring. It's a greeting card. It says, be kind for everyone is having a hard battle. And uh, it's, uh, so who do you want to guess? Who said that? Sounds like the Buddha, doesn't it? So anybody think they know who it is? Could be Thich Nhat Hanh, but isn't Thich Nhat Hanh. Who? Isn't a Buddhist. Be kind, for everyone is having a hard battle. Jerry Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Plato. Ah, see? So how would you see that everybody is having a hard time if everybody didn't tell you? Here's a plan. Everybody here is not having such a hard time that they're not here today. They're here. <laughs> now, if somebody next to you, are you sitting, everybody should be sitting next to somebody, okay? Let's do this, sit next to somebody. Sit next to somebody to whom you could talk, okay? Okay. You don't have to tell them what your hard time is. <laughs> you have neighbor, nobody next to you. I'll come sit with you. Okay. All right. So we don't need to. We'll just look at each other. We will communicate. The hard time is the hard time is evident. Okay. The hard time is evident. Just want you to tell that person that you get it about hard times. And if you think for a minute, think for a minute, everything. You get some, all I want you to think about is whether there's something that's causing you grief in your life. <laughs> so I actually, actually that was what I wanted to have happen. Every, yeah. And we all laughed. And we all laughed. That was the lesson. You don't have to tell the grief. You just can say hello to the person now. Tell them, you know.
So that's what I wanted you to do. You don't have to tell the grief. <laughs> this actually might be an important lesson, though. Which one? Which one? Okay. So here, we'll do it communally. Ding, 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 ding. So really, really what I had the intuition, don't, don't go back, you could stay with your person, that's okay. Really what I had the intuition would happen, would happen, that um, there isn't anybody. That, that particular thing, everybody is having a hard battle. Some people it's obvious it's on the outside. But everybody, if you ask, it's on the inside. There's a hard battle. And we know it. You know, being alive is already hard. It's really the first noble truth. Life is difficult. Sometimes I think it goes from being comfortable to being challenged, to being comfortable, to being challenged, to being comfortable. And then sometimes that seems a little dreary to me. I think there must be something on the other side of just comfortable, absence <laughs> of challenge must be sometimes when we really feel great, uplifted. I think we do. I think there are periods where we feel lifted up. Not as often as we feel challenged, I would wager. We feel really challenged. We are challenged by circumstances. What I wanted to really point the attention, first of all, what else did you say to each other in those two minutes? Rose said, you know, Rose was laughing here about, do we each have a grief? Which grief? She wanted to know, which grief should we talk about? Now, you know, make a hierarchy of griefs. What else did you think about that? Was it hard for you to figure out what was the grief in your life? Anybody had to think long? Uh, no? No. As a matter of fact, I thought about that. Uh, part of my thinking about this was I was on a, I was on a phone call with um, a, a practitioner back east. Who was, I was talking. We were talking about her practice, and she said, um, "Everything's fine. My life's pretty good. Everything's going along." And the, but we talked for twenty minutes, and we find out that her sister has this going wrong, and. In her brother's family, there's this other problem. If the grief is not in our particular body at this point or in our particular family, it's one degree of separation away. Mm -hmm. Now, we really, 
living in the midst of it. And we get up every morning, it's heroic, and we go back out and we interact with people. You think about that, it's, it's such a, um, an inspirer to be a consolation to people. <laughs> and I began to think about, I thought about how we started that conversation. We talked about it at the end of the conversation that we had started. And I said, how's everything with you? And she said, oh, everything's fine. <coughs> and then talk a little while. Everything is not fine. Everything is only on the, it looks, but if you look in it, if the, now this came around to where I was thinking about visibility. If we had really great visibility, we could look in any group, I could look at you, and know even when it isn't visible, that everybody here has some grief on their mind. You could look around and know that. And I was thinking the other way, that in the middle of grief, if the mind is was clear enough and we could see what else is there, there's always something around the edges. The whole thing that I wanted to talk about was keeping the mind open enough, like as if there were walls of the mind. Do you know in those old Harrison Ford movies, there's one of them where the walls of some cave start closing in. Do you remember that? <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that? That's my favorite movie. I love that. So here come the, the walls closing in. If you could push those walls out all the time and think, you know, there's an escape route somewhere here. There's a, there's a route out of this, this confined view. It all started, this whole week started, because right after class last week, I guess it was on Thursday morning, I uh, I saw photos of the closing ceremony of the the Ground Zero of the World Trade Center, and um, I even broke my rule about not watching television to just watch a film clip of it and turned it on. And uh, how many of you saw it? Yeah. So here's this incredibly tragic scene, incredibly tragic, because what you don't see, I was thinking, what can I see in this picture that I don't see in this picture? What you don't see is the somewhere between two and 3,000 families directly affected by those people. For two and th somewhere between two and, th nearer to three than 2,000 families, this is a cemetery for them. And their person is buried there for that many people. Uh, there are, I think, 10,000 children affected by that scene. And you don't see the 10,000 children. Also, in the picture, what you do see, what you wouldn't have seen 50 years ago, are uh, women in the honor guard. I mean, we don't want to have honor guards honoring dead people killed in catastrophic events. But the people carrying the symbolic stretcher, that was the most touching scene. They had an honor guard carrying a stretcher into an emergency vehicle. Did you see that? It was covered with a flag as a, as a blanket. And they carried it down the length or up the length of that curved ramp through which they had brought the trucks up and down into that pit. 
and the honor guard were uh, members of all the police and fire and um, I guess also military that they were an honor guard but they were women as well as men and I thought about the that another piece of that hidden picture is that the world has changed for women in the last 50 years 50 years there would not have been women there not a single one and that the people in all these ceremonies were all different colors standing next to each other all different people in the color guard all different people in the honoring ceremonies that wouldn't have happened 50 years ago so if you can really look i, I was thinking to myself I was suddenly uplifted by that woman carrying that stretcher. It's a horrible, horrible thing to be carrying a stretcher representing nearly 3,000 people who died. But I thought, whoa, there's a woman there. I remembered um, that when the... Um, I saw a picture years and years ago must be when I was in school, of a, a scientific meeting with Albert Einstein as a young man. <coughs> Fermi was there, physicists of the earliest, early 20th century, all men in suits. And in one corner, Eve Curry. And one woman in that whole scene with men. So at least 50% of the people in medical schools and dental schools and doing all kinds of advanced scientific research now are women. And it's a hundred years later than that. And it didn't come easy either. But if I could have seen that picture when I saw it of all those men and Eve Curry and see through Eve Curry with a visibility and see with a floor, like if I were a psychic, I would say, okay, she is the herald of a uh, hundred years from now when women will have all those opportunities that men have. The, ex the example of that more recently was the meeting in Bonn after, um, after the fighting in Afghanistan where the interim, the new interim government met in Bonn to form an interim government in Afghanistan. So here's the whole picture of those people. And in the corner is one woman, kind of in the corner like Eve Curry, but she's, and her head is covered, but she's not veiled, and she's in the government. So I'm trying to look really hard at this and thinking that behind her is a sign of liberation for women who are veiled and hidden in a whole part of the world where women don't have anything to do with government or can't vote. That I, I keep thinking that my hope will fail and my courage will fail if I cannot see through what I see on the surface and see the hope in it, and if I cannot see through what looks like a normal surface and see the pain in it, then I won't be a whole person. But I need to be able to look through and see the pain because then it will keep me determined to be a consoler in my life. And I need to see past the pain to what's hopeful about it. Otherwise, I won't have the heart to be a consoler. 
I won't want to get up in the morning and do another day. And I really think that's the heart of this practice, that we keep pushing back the walls of the mind that at any moment are challenged. Do you know the classic story? About, as I tell you that, it comes to my mind that it requires the ability to uh, see really deeply what's true. And the classic, uh, the classic debate story in the, in the Buddhist, uh, contemporary Buddhist teachings have to do with a, uh, a meeting that took place probably 10 or 15 years ago uh, between uh, the students of uh, Kala Rinpoche, who were, was a Tibetan teacher of great renown, died in his late 90s. I, I saw him teach in uh, San Francisco. Actually, he did a, a bodhisattva initiation in San Francisco. It was wonderful, tall, regal, and uh, playful, um, funny. He said, don't worry about taking these, but this uh, bodhisattva vow with me, because a vow with a guru only lasts as long as that guru's lifetime. And I'm very old. I'm not going to live very long. So you don't have to worry about the consequences of this vow. Um, and he also said, don't worry about breaking this vow about infinite uh, devoting your life. He said, because you surely will. And it doesn't matter that you will. It only matters that you make that intention that you do it. Anyway, Kala Rinpoche's students got him together with the um, Sansanim students, the, the uh, Roshi of the Providence Zen Center, uh, Korean Zen master, Sansang Song. And here are the two of them together, and they're going to have a, uh, an open meeting with all their students. They're going to give teachings. And here come these two eminent dignitaries in, Kalu in his robes, and Sansanim in his Zen outfit, big sleeves, and they sit down and they, they uh, and Kalo doesn't speak English. And uh, Sansanim spoke, not that well, but he spoke. Anyway, he reached into his sleeve and took out an orange and held it out and said to uh, Kalo Rinpoche, what is this? And Kalo Rinpoche's uh, interpreters but he doesn't get it. And Sansanim says, what is this? Again, what is this? And Kala Rinpoche checks with his interpreters. Um, then he looks at them and he says, don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> I think it's a great story about if you could really see into what could you tell me? What if you really wanted to see, if you wanted to tell if you wanted to make that that orange, the the center of some important dharma, what would you say? I could see a lot of things in that orange. What could you see in that orange? You can see a seed. It's a seed carrier that orange. So right. So it has seeds, so you could tell the whole story of how life perpetuates itself, and not only in oranges, but in all kinds of species of things, and how the seeds of different things come together. 
You could tell everything about evolution. You could tell the whole story of the creation of the world from that orange because it's got seeds in it. What else? It's a form of nourishment. So, uh, Shelley, what else could you tell about that from that? Yeah, okay. Well, how could it represent spiritual nourishment? Tell me that. This uh, it, well, just as a symbolic form of nourishment. Okay. Yeah. There is nourishment. And we, so we could start with there is nourishment. And not only do, us, do our bodies need to be nourished, but in order to have the stamina to get through a whole life, challenged as it is, we need spiritual nourishment as, uh, as well. This is very good. We're going to take this orange and we're going to make the whole of the world out of it. What what else? It has juice and it has sweetness. Yeah. Sweet juice, so there's liquid to quench our thirst. But also it's sweet liquid. Uh, but there's the uh, pulp, which sometimes is a, a challenge. All right. It has a fear. So, so you want to do a little Dharma a riff on that on that challenge, Miriam? Yeah. And we can't miss out on that. <laughs> it should look like we think it should look. We, we have to accept it and find the sweetness in everything that we experience. There you go. Okay. And it also has a rind and sound. And that's protecting from sweetness. All right. So without the, the bitter, the sweet, it, there is no sweetness. Okay, so Lynn, the, this is a collective Dharma offering. Uh, Debbie, who I'm so happy to see after so many years, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah. I had two thoughts. The first one, I'll leave for the second. Uh, it, it, going on for the ride, it, it, it's hidden. Uh -huh. um, its nature is hidden by its protective cover. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to, you, from looking at it on the outside, you or into it without, uh, without having had some experience about it, what was and is. But then the second, the Dharma thing that came to me immediately was you know, that not, it was nothing. Mm -hmm. It was empty. It wasn't. It didn't exist. And that was my that's your two thoughts, all right. So we're going to make the whole story of Dharma. We're going to do emptiness and fullness. We'll come around to, yeah. Go ahead. The idea was that it has one skin, but it's many sections inside. Uh huh. It's made up of something that is can be separated, but it's all one thing. Uh huh. Uh huh. Thereby, what you want to elaborate, make that a Dharma, generate, or is it clearly? Yeah. Many different personalities, and yet we tend to identify with ourselves just as one thing. Okay, there we go. Marianne, do you need us? Oh, I just wanted to say we need to borrow a few. Oh, okay. Um, I want to take that little piece too, because I think that not only do we think that we are one thing and not separate things, and by the way, I think we tend to notice about ourselves. Well, this is where we're going to go next. Notice about ourselves the things about ourselves that are the most worrisome. 
Like when we notice about the world, we notice what's most worrisome. We don't notice so much what's lovely. We're just geared to do that. I think we do the same thing with ourselves as well. That's one way to go, which we'll come back to. And the other is we, we tend to think of ourselves as separate from everybody else. But, uh, you know, you think about it in the great chain of being. You know, the, 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 the Buddhists like to say that we have been over time everyone's grandmother and everyone's mother and everyone's child and everyone's sister. And then you think, well, I don't get that in karma and how does it work in Akashic records. But, you know, when you think about all those orange seeds coming around and around and around through all those oranges back and forth, forever and ever there's an orange tree in the courtyard of um, Santa Sabina, the retreat center here in uh, San Rafael, that they say was grown from a cutting from a tree from St. Dominic at some point way back. And, it, you know, it's from some tree somewhere, sometime. <laughs> I hope that, you know, I like to think it came from St. Dominic. So what else about, okay. The first thing that came to my mind was it was very easy to visualize it. Which is thank you, Yeah. Uh-huh. And there are colors. I mean, there, it's a rough rind. Just to look at the world on the level of sensoriness, if you look out, we are particularly blessed, of course, to live here. But if you look out, that there is color. Can you imagine? I mean, we could do a whole story about how light is refracted. We could study physics from that orange. Because the thing is that that orange appears orange because of the way the atmosphere is and the way the light coming from the sun is refracted in a particular way into the atmosphere and the way our retinas work. Otherwise, we wouldn't notice that the, the orange is orange. Yeah? Yeah. Wasn't it a birth to a blossom first, then to an orange? I guess it was a blossom first. Mm-hmm. There you go. So would you like to elaborate further on that? Uh-huh. So here we go. That, that actually is a very nice tie-in with just as a mother would give her chi- uh, life to support her, to protect her one and only child, that that instinct about um, a wee baby, that there's something about us. I asked somebody this question the other day. How would you respond to this? I said, when you walk down an aisle in a supermarket and there's a person with a baby walking along, coming towards you, say, you're going to pass, and the, the baby is um, 
in a basket in a in a baby seat, and the the care t care person, the mother or the father or whoever it is, is shopping on the shelves here, and the baby catches your eye. What do you do? Smile. You talk to it, don't you? <laughs> yeah. There is something about you do talk to it, don't you? You say something to it, and you, uh, without thinking about it, you raise your voice because you know they hear better in that tone of voice. And so they raise. You say, "Hi, baby." You know, nobody talks to baby in this tone of voice. There's something built into us to respond to that. We have good hearts on babies. Yeah. But with enough encouragement, the orange can become part of you. And um, that also reminds me of the fact that I, as a creature, that there are elements in me that were created in supernova, you know, hundreds, millions of years ago, immeasurably far away, but now they are part of me. So it's that sense of transcendent. Listen, David, transcendent connectedness, a beautiful, wonderful term. And I like that very much. I have to remember, maybe I write it down. Because, um, you know, here we teach, we, we talk all the time about anatta, that when, that there's no separateness back to the, there aren't any sections of that. Um, there are, the sections look like they're discrete sections. But uh, in fact, Circle, supernova, you know. There is nobody here who was not part of it, doesn't have, you know, how do I know that a piece of my kidney wasn't a, a supernova? And where it will be eventually, because nothing gets lost. It's a closed system in a certain sense. Rose. I want to get back to the emptiness, because one person could say, oh, it's food, and another person would say, oh, it's a table decoration, and then the kids would say, no, we can roll it on the floor and play with it like a ball, and then the, the kindergarten teacher would say, okay, now we're going to have a lesson on colors today, so here's my example for Yeah. So, so it isn't anything until we say so. Now, the, here we come to some, another <laughs> point of very good dharma. Nothing is anything until we say so, and it can become something else when we call it something else. We make it up all the time, <laughs> everything. There we go. Uh, well, don't forget everything what we're going to say, because I want to tell you this story the other day, because uh, I think this is the important piece, because it comes to the place of if we are making up a not good story, that it's an op knowing it's an optional story. Somebody hurts your feelings. That ever happens to anybody here? <laughs> let's it lets you down in some way, and let's just suppose it's an intimate of yours. Okay, okay. Let's just suppose it. <laughs> let's just suppose Debbie says it's an intimate of yours. So it's someone you've known for a long time. You feel injured and challenged. You are driving around in your car, which in my experience is one of the best places to feel injured and challenged and have it <laughs> run amok because you're all, you know, it's already challenging to be out there. 
And what the mind, what my mind does, yours might not do it, you tell me if it does, is it begins to say, this person doesn't, how could that person have done this to me? And then it begins to think, well, of course they did it to me. They've done it because it's exactly like they do their whole life. They've done this 800,000 times, just like that. And you start to make what would amount to, if you were a trial lawyer, the witness, the, the, the trial case, the indictment. You begin to write it in your mind. Not only did they do that at breakfast this morning, but yesterday afternoon and 10 days ago and on Easter Sunday, and a year ago was the worst, but then I knew 40 years ago when they first did that. And you prepare the trial, you know. And the mind just does that. It like shuffles out the cards, says, gives me a readout of everything that that person ever did in this bad category. No, it's not true, it does. Well, everybody's laughing, it must happen to people. Give me a sign if you ever had this experience, okay? <laughs> Okay, so then I thought to myself, after a while, I was feeling really bad because it kind of pollutes the mind. I really would not like to be a trial attorney. I mean, so I've I, I made this enormous case. And then I thought, quite a horrifying thought, I thought, suppose I needed tomorrow to write the eulogy for this person. Would these be the things I would be saying? No. It actually makes tears come in my eyes. So then I started to pretend that I was writing the eulogy. Now, I could do that too. Yeah. Oh, and also make a very good case for the uniqueness of this particular individual. That, as David said, this is the confluence of all the karma from the supernova and everything else that ever happens constellates in a person forever and ever. In that way, just because of all the karmic forces involved, and it couldn't be otherwise. It just couldn't have been otherwise. That doesn't mean it wasn't painful. It just means it couldn't have been otherwise. There is nothing to forgive. You know, if, if you're walking along on the edge of a cliff and a rock falls down on you, you don't get, I mean, assuming you live to tell about it, can't be mad at the rock. It didn't make up its mind to do that. It didn't decide, aha, here comes so-and-so that I have it in for, that I'm now falling off. But what if it's the same with everybody? What if they don't get to choose? Because we don't get to choose. You say, well, they could have thought about it. They probably did. If they could have thought about it differently, it would have come out differently. There's a certain way that requires really an incredible amount of surrender to say, it couldn't have been other. Well, then you think, whoa, then the world is spiraling in a bad shape. What's going to happen to us? It could be other, but it couldn't have been other. That's the whole point. If everybody got up tomorrow and said, you know, wait, blow a whistle, we are doing this wrong. Stop. Everybody go home. I either talked about this last week or the week before. It's my most consistent hope for the world that everyone will say the equivalent of this uh, statement in the New York Times. Stop. 
we have to think this over. We are doing it wrong. It, the whole of it, the it that we're doing wrong is we have not waken up from the sleep of destructiveness, that there is no end. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal law. It's a line out of the Dhammapada. It's 2,500 years old. It remained, hatred never ceases by hatred. Only by love is hatred ended. This is the eternal law. There's like a fundamental thing. There are like a few things that are true. We could say the whole of Dharmic wisdom, probably in five statements, life is extremely difficult just because we're in it. Just, just, because, we, just because our bodies don't live forever. Actually, it's probably good that they don't live forever. That would have its own problems. But uh, that, they, that they run down, that we have old age and sickness and death and loss and we grieve about it. That we have the loss of our bodies, the loss of our minds, the loss of our hopes, the losses of vigor. Um, you know, we laughed. I, I discover more and more that the kinds of jokes that people are sending me now in my email are old people jokes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the thing is, they're funny. <laughs> huh? There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that, I know. No, the thing is, they're even funny. Um, but if I, I, I frequently, people send me jokes and then I send them on to my children. But I don't send them the old people ones because I don't think they'll get them. <laughs> it's not funny for them yet. <laughs> and I think we laugh actually um, because they're so right on. And that, um, But the actually the, in uh, in maybe uh, I won't wait for the right week to do this, but the first noble truth about life being suffering is often challenged. You know, say, but look, it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's spring and there are turkeys and uh, Miriam has a new grandbaby. You know, it's not all suffering. The suffering that it means is not that it's all painful. Some of it is very beautiful. The meaning of that suffering, it, it, what could be the suffering in that, is that it's not permanent. It won't last. That baby will grow up and have her sh fair share of troubles. Um, and it'll get to be uh, winter again. It won't be green out there. And there are floods all over the place and forest fires. And there's just a lot of difficulty in being alive. Doesn't mean that beauty doesn't exist. Doesn't mean that wonder doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that the urge to life gets diminished because I don't know that it does. For most of us, we want to keep on going. We, and we have this really incredible desire to make it better. So I have a feeling that in some... Maybe there'll be some moment where there'll be enough people on the earth. And rather than saying there are so many people, they're definitely going to have a big conflagration. Maybe there'll be so many people, they'll catch on to the fact 
that we have to start doing it another way. Not, not by getting even. It used to be a bumper sticker that said, I don't get mad, I get even. It's not a good bumper sticker, you know? Because the whole world is involved in eternally getting even. We're getting even, and then we get even back, and then we get even back, and even back. So I think that what I, what I got off on saying, and I want to go back to the orange, because there's a whole piece of the orange that we haven't seen or mentioned yet. is that I am determined to see through a mind full of uh, opinions about somebody. That opinions, opinion, opinions are things that form subsequent to the fact of our being uh, challenged. I get challenged by something and then I make opinions about what's the matter with this person. And then I'm not careful I'll begin to have uh, anger and a grudge and vengeful thoughts on that person. And I will, instead of making the effort to take the uh, anger out of my heart, I'll be fanning the flames of anger in my heart. And so what I really need to do is see through those opinions. Like we've been talking about, could I see through the opinions? Could I see through the opinions about all those things that this person has done wrong this morning, yesterday, 10 days ago, 40 days ago, and last year and 10 years ago, to all the other wonderful things that that person also does in addition. It's like, can I see through that picture in the World Trade Center and see also there are women and all colors of women? Can I see through everything? Can I see through the outside veneer of here and recognize that everybody's in trouble. What else do you see in the orange? I see the interconnectedness between the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. Mm -hmm. And although we may think of the orange as being our tool, we use it as food to feed us, <coughs> the orange is also using us to increase itself. It, there, there wouldn't be as many orange, orange trees or oranges on this earth if, it, if the orange had not manipulated us through its sweetness and its beauty to uh, play around with it and to plant more and more and more of it. So we're all interconnected. Actually, Erin, uh, I just heard about a book called The... Uh where the theory yeah. came from. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the botany of desire. Oh, I have been wanting to read that. That somehow the plants are in charge of us. And they push us around the world. And we think we have dominion over them and that we're farming. But that they are actually pushing us around. We are the instruments of the oranges. It's very classy to think that really uh, puts, a, puts a different perspective around that. Anybody else read it yet? Wonderful, huh? Uh, the, uh, the, the Botany of Desire. I'm going to read that. What else in the orange? Florence. Ah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's symbolic of women. 
That's a women. Why is an orange a woman's thing? Oh, it has seeds. It's like a womb. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's another. It's another example of uh, of um, of the shift in the world away from. Uh, we think a shift in the world away from. Uh, of patriarchally dominated cultures. Also, uh, I want to look at the fact that I want to mention that um, there's vitamin C in there, and it's nourishing to have orange juice. And uh, the uh, if we look at it, we think about how many people. I want to go back to Shelley and the nourishment because we went off from there and we said, okay, spiritual nourishment. Okay, also physical nourishment and the fact that we could look at any piece of food and talk about the food distribution in the world and how it isn't good enough and how too many people do not have adequate nutrition. You can look at that orange and say there are children uh, all over the world, um, 30,000 children under the age of five die every day from malnutrition in the world. Also, without scurvy. We don't experience that in this country. Yeah, without vitamin C. Is there still scurvy in the world? I didn't I think. think and vitamin C, very easy to produce um, artificially. The whole world could get up and take a vitamin C tablet in the morning. So I, really what I wanted to talk about was uh, the openness of a mind that, didn't, what, that was able to see more than what was there and come up with something new and not get stuck in what's there. I think we have more of a tendency to get stuck in what's difficult than stuck in what's good. I think we see what's good and then we say, okay, that's good, don't have to worry about that, and we're on to the next worry. And I think we do the same thing with ourselves. So I would like to, uh, I, I, you're still with your partner or near your partner. I thought we could use these last few minutes. I never got up to the text. The text was the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch. And I, the story around this is I've had this in my purse for 25 years. I changed my purse. I just, as a matter of course, I put my wallet in a new purse. And I put this in with it. And I don't know if it's an amulet, because uh, I have one photo in my wallet that I haven't changed in 45 years. So there are certain things you just carry with you. Um, so I thought I should read this to you, but I will next week, and do a commentary on the third Zen, the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch. But I saw the homework from the from the new dedicated practitioners group. And the piece of the homework that I liked the, especially well was they said, uh, what, are the, what are three things, five things you really like about yourself? That five good things about yourself, five things that you're proud of, that you feel good about, five traits that you think are well-developed. And I thought that's such a good question because 
when, when we say to people, what's your principal hindrance? People are really right there, you know, I have a short <laughs> fuse, I'm very nervous, I fret about everything, I'm eternally doubting myself, I can't get over my lust, and we don't mind saying that in a public place. But um, people are so funny about saying to themselves, you know, I'm really great. I have these five wonderful things about myself. I would like to be my friend. Um, so I would like you to turn to your person that you were with. Ready, set. Just have to decide which of you starts. Tell them the five good things. Did you do it? Did you do it? I thought it would be. I thought it would be a really classy thing. Was It was easy then. Nobody seemed to have any problem with that. Easy? Was hard? Who thinks it was hard? Ah, all right. Who would like to stand up? I, ten people, ten people, just one thing. Stand up and say out to the whole group one thing that you said to your partner. I am. Go ahead, do it. Go. I have lust for life. <laughs> I'm a loyal friend. Person. Okay, loud, loud. I'm an honest person, yeah, okay. Go ahead. Like to learn. 
Everybody talked. I'm a creative person. I'm a creative person. Ethical in business. I'm a loving person. I'm a loving person. I'm a generous person. I'm a generous person. I'm a good listener. I'm alive. Hmm? I'm alive. I'm alive. Stand up. I'm a kind person. A great sense of humor. <laughs> Actually, she's my daughter as well, so it, it comes in the genes. <laughs> it's part of her inheritance. <laughs> She's an amazing person. And all of us know that Carol's here every week, and uh, I really appreciate that you're here, Carol. I'm glad. Actually, in a particular way. Be great, wouldn't it, if everybody got up tomorrow and said to the person next door, you're amazing. You got up again. <laughs> you came out of your house. You're doing another day. It's hard to do another day. And, yeah. It's hard, it's hard. People get out of bed when they're tremendously depressed. People get out of bed very physically compromised. People get out of bed with their families in tremendous disarray. People get out of bed with enormously heavy hearts. And they get up out of bed and they do another day. It's amazing to be a person. And they continue to want to be here and to love and appreciate for as long as they are. There's got to be a way that we, that I, this is my practice, I have to take whatever happens to me and make the most direct route I can from that experience to undoing the habits of my mind that close it. And push back the walls of the mind. I have to find, I told you that, that story before and said if I make a list of, uh, to present to the jury, I have to right away write the eulogy. I have to do whatever is going to be the countermanding move. I have to pull the rug out from whatever view I have just solidified. I don't want to get stuck in a view. I am opinionated. I make opinions faster than anything. 
I want to be able to open my mind so the opinion falls out. There's a very great line from the Tibetan teachings. It says, all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. Think to myself, if my mind was large enough, everything could form in it. It wouldn't matter. I could think the most outrageous things. I could get mad. I could even make a few lists. They would pretty soon fly out. There wouldn't be any place for them to stay. Somebody gave me a wonderful image a couple of years ago. They said, the walls of my mind feel so distant from me that I can't find the hooks to hang my opinions on. <laughs> That's what I would like to have. I would like to have the walls of my mind so distant from me that I can't find the hooks to hang my opinions on. And then they will fly away like balloons. And we won't be... Uh, stuck with them. Would that they were balloons. They're like lead balloons. We have to carry them around all the time to keep reinforcing our lists so we don't forget our opinions. We could become completely forgetful. We wouldn't have to remember any of our opinions. It would be a great relief. Then we could make up our lives moment to moment. It's probably what enlightenment is. So it's as 11, we need to stop. But actually, it wasn't where I meant to go, but it was better than what I meant to do. So. <laughs> Probably that's a great dharma as well. It's never where we meant to go. <laughs> where we meant to go is probably the most foolhardy thing to say of all. <laughs> So let's sit a minute thinking about everybody that we care about and hold in our hearts. Male beings everywhere find the comfort and consolation that they need. <coughs> and short of suffering, may we all be short of free of suffering, may we all be consoled in our suffering. and able to be consolers as well.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.